Well, today we're going to talk about uh, a word um, and a topic called propitiation. And what we've been doing at Crosspoint is we've been talking about dimensions of the message of the cross. The, the message of the cross is powerful for those who believe. Now, one of the things that we've emphasized every single week is that it's not the image of the cross. It's not wearing a cross on a necklace that's powerful. It's not hanging a cross up in your home that's powerful. And if you have a cross up in your home, hey, great, that's awesome. We do too. We got one of those iron ones. It's brown and it's cool looking. Uh, but looking at that, having that up on the wall does no power. We're not, we're not superstitious at cross point. You know, we're not like if a vampire comes, that's powerful. You know what I mean? Like... It doesn't work, okay? The power of the cross is in the message, what it means. What the death of Jesus means is what changes our lives. As we believe in the message of the cross, as we understand it, the message of the cross saves us. It reconciles us to God, as we've talked about last week. It redeems us from sin, Satan, and self, as we talked about the week before. It justifies us and makes us righteous with the righteousness of Christ by faith. We talked about the first week. And this week we're talking about the fact that the message of the cross, Jesus dying on the cross means that Jesus made propitiation for our sins. Now what is the meaning of this strange word, propitiation? This is a strange word. The meaning of the word propitiation, what it means is, is it means that the wrath of God has been averted because of the death of Jesus Christ. That the wrath of God has been pacified and pleased and appeased because of Jesus dying on the cross. On Good Friday, we will remember and read in our passages, read in our Bible, that when Jesus was dying on the cross in the middle of the day, the noonday went dark. There was an earthquake, and the veil or the curtain of the temple was torn in two. All of that darkness, earthquake, the the curtain being torn in two, as the Gospel of Matthew tells us, it points to the fact that Jesus' greatest pain on the cross was not physical. The greatest pain that Jesus experienced when he died for you and I had nothing to do with the physical stripes, although that was painful and excruciating. The greatest pain that Jesus experienced on the cross for you and I was he experienced the wrath of God when he was dying in our place. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the only statement that Jesus made of of uncertainty. He never said anything about, this is really painful. I mean, he did say, I thirst. But the greatest statement of uncertainty was when he quoted that psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what that pointed to is that for all who believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus took the condemnation and the wrath of God in our place. That is propitiation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 talks about Jesus taking the wrath of God in our place. In fact, it says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, we looked at justification first week, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The eternal anger and wrath that God has for sin was taken in Jesus so that we sinners could be saved. Hallelujah. Propitiation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 says, 
that we are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is propitiation. Now listen. Because propitiation has so much to do with the wrath of God, that's why this is a forgotten word and concept. Because we have imagined that Christianity would be much better for us if we didn't have to deal with the wrath of God at all. If we, we could actually talk about the love of God and the death of Jesus without actually having to deal with these arcane ideas of wrath and everything like that. We're forgiven. God is love. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Why do we even talk about propitiation? Why do we even talk about being saved from the wrath of God when it doesn't really matter? I can just focus on the love of God. But here's the, point, the problem with that. The problem is, is that the love of God means nothing. If the wrath of God is not averted in the death of Jesus Christ. Love without justice. Love without truth is nothing but empty sentimentality. One scholar by the name of Leon Morse in a book titled... The apostolic preaching of the cross. Here's what he said about this distinction of the love and the wrath of God. And and why understanding the wrath and thinking about the wrath of God is actually important for our faith. And for our growth and for for our maturity. And for our explosion of worship for God. He says this in his book, quote. We sometimes find among men an affection which is untempered by a sterner side. And this we call not love, but sentimentality. Amen. Right. Absolutely. He goes on to say, It is not such that the Bible thinks of when it speaks of the love of God, but rather of a love which is so jealous for the good of the loved one that it blazes out in fiery wrath against everything that is evil. Now that's love. Love is when wrath, pursues that which is destructive, pursues and burns up that which is destructive and destroys people in their life and their relationships and which divides people from their loved ones. That is an appropriate form, an appropriate idea of the wrath of God. Now think about it in your own life. Let's just, let's just for a second, we'll just leave God kind of, well, I mean, we're not putting God over here. God's still here. God's in the center. God's in the center. But let's just think about you and I really quick. And think about our relationships. Think about it. You and I have an appropriate form of wrath when we see something in a loved one that's destroying them. And we desire to destroy it. In fact, we are not loving if we see something in a loved one that's destroying them and dividing them from from us. Like if I have a loved one and they're being destroyed by something that's destroying their life and it's destroying my relationship with them. It forbids my fellowship and communion with them. I appropriately get angry and want to destroy the thing that is destroying them and destroying my relationship with them. That's an appropriate form of wrath. When I was growing up, my brothers and I, I was the youngest of three. And we have, of course, we experience inappropriate forms of wrath with each other. Can I get an amen? Oh, my goodness. We won't talk about that today, though, because we're at church. But in our household, we went through a season where a parent was experiencing alcohol, alcoholism. We had a parent that was an alcoholic. And like all alcoholics, they would hide their alcohol around the house 
under the lettuce in the drawers, up in secret places of the closet. And what my brothers and I used to do is we used to, almost on a daily basis, go throughout the house and try to find the hidden alcohol. And we would take it in the back. Bottles of liquor and cans of beer. And we would destroy it against the cement. We would destroy those bottles with that whiskey. We would destroy that alcohol in the containers that contained it. And then we would take the cans of beer and we would throw it over the fence and get rid of it in the hopes of that we might remove the thing that destroys both our parent and our relationship with our parent. That was an appropriate form of wrath. Now think about that. All of you have known somebody that you love, and you go, man, I wish I could take what's destroying them and burn it up in a pile of heap and make it in ashes. Now imagine an infinite holy God that looks on earth and looks at human beings and sees that his creation made fearfully and wonderfully made in his image, and you know what he has to do in his holiness and his own character and to save his people, he has to destroy that which destroys us, which is sin. And what propitiation is, now this is, the, this is the great thing about propitiation. What propitiation is, is it's God's strategic ability to separate sin and destroy it and save the sinner. Which is an amazing thing he does. It's miraculous. And to give us a picture, to take this idea of the message of the cross and propitiation and Jesus and all that Jesus does, I want to go to the picture of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. It's an Old Testament book, uh, Leviticus chapter 16. And what I want to do is I want to capture the meaning and what happened on the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament prefigures The Good Friday and Jesus' death on the cross. It's a picture. And here's what it is. What this does for us, I'll tell you what it does. It gives us a word picture. It gives us an image that's not drawn on a piece of paper so we can look at it. It gives us a word image of propitiation so we can appreciate it. Now, when you come to the book of Leviticus, let me just warn you about this book. Never read this book right before you go to bed unless you want to fall asleep. Can I get an amen? If you wake up in the middle of the night and you are suffering from insomnia, read the book of Leviticus. It'll put you to sleep. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that at all. This book was so graphic with blood and sacrifices. It was the code book for a holy God making an unholy people acceptable in his presence through sacrifice and animals and blood and and, and the slaughter of animals and altars and all these things that for us modern people is a little creepy. But in the ancient world, it was a powerful picture. In fact, little Hebrew children in the ancient world, the first book that they learned was the book of Leviticus because it was a word picture. It was so imaginative, it was so creative, that little Hebrew boys and girls learned what God was doing through the Day of Atonement, through all of the sacrificial things that made the people clean, and they could understand God's holiness, they could understand their unholiness, and how God makes them right. And so it was a powerful book for children in the ancient world. And that's why I want to take us there, because it provides an image, a word image of propitiation that I find very powerful. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I want to read a significant portion of this passage outright, all right, just at the beginning, so we've kind of got it on the table. 
And so if you fall asleep while I'm reading it, I'll wake you up when I'm done. Amen. Uh, But Leviticus chapter 16, if you listen to it, though, you listen to the details and you try to imagine what's happening here, it really is not boring. It's actually pretty dynamic stuff, and and it's pretty saucy stuff. So Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, verse 1, knowing this is a prefiguring of Good Friday and Jesus' death on the cross in the New Testament, listen carefully. It says here, the Lord spoke to Moses... After the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. I'll come back to that. And shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So here we go. He's going into this tent, and he's, gonna, he's killing an animals and this, this stuff. And then verses 6 through uh, 14 describes that Aaron has to get his own sacrifices for himself and for his family. So here's Aaron. Aaron is the high priest. Aaron is the most holy man in all of Israel. The most holy guy. I mean, we're talking about the guy you look at and go, that dude is holy. And even Aaron is required to have sacrifice because he is unclean. His family is unclean. Do you know that all have fallen short of the glory of God? All are deserving of the wrath of God. All will be separated eternally from God without the sacrifice and faith in Jesus Christ. Aaron points to that. But we skip down to verse 15. And it begins to describe what Aaron has to do for the nation of Israel so that God's wrath is averted. Look at verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, that is the curtain, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over with the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanlinesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanlinesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanlinesses of the people of Israel." And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat 
and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all of their transgressions, all of their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Love that, the remote area, the wilderness. That's kind of cool. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. That probably gets us what we need to get for me to communicate this message now. What's going on? The day of atonement. They had to do this every single year. And there's four elements that I want to talk about with the Day of Atonement that, that prefigures Good Friday in Jesus' death. That is a picture or a type of Jesus' death to help us capture why propitiation is important and how we need to respond to propitiation, all right? So here's the four elements of the Day of Atonement. Number one is the tabernacle. Everybody say tabernacle. All right, now the tabernacle. Now, if you want to know the details about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle works, which here is described as a tent, but in Hebrews chapter 9, it outlines everything that's in the tabernacle. But there's two sections of the tabernacle that's really important. First of all, there's called the holy place. And that's where the lampstand is and the table to bread is. And it's really sweet and it's really important and a lot of great stuff happens there for the purpose of atonement. But then beyond that into the center, beyond that through a curtain is the most holy place, which you all have heard as the holy of holies. And no one could go into holy of holies except the high priest on the very day that we're talking about right here, the day of atonement once a year. And what was in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you guys have ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what that looks like, right? I mean, we have been taught by Steven Spielberg these great things about the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this big case. And it had two angels on it, right? This gold, overlay with gold. And it was these two angels that were made on it. And angels, you know how it goes. He's got the wings. The wings, boom. Right? This angel does this. And then on the other side is the other angels. And they go, boom. And then the two sets of wings meet each other. And that's called the mercy seat. You heard that being read many times. Mercy seat, mercy seat, mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where God meets his people. The mercy seat is where the holiness and the glory of God resides. But the only problem is, is that the holiness and the glory of God cannot reside with sinful people. And so what... The high priest did, Aaron, in this situation, would take blood and would go in there and with incense and smoke and everything like that, would create a screen so that he wouldn't see the holiness of God because the moment he sees the holiness of God, boom, he's zapped. He's burned up with the blazing fire of the glory of God. And so that smoke created a screen so he wouldn't see it. And also it created a screen so God wouldn't look upon a sinner. And he would take the blood and he would apply it to the mercy seat. And that would avert the wrath of God in theory, everybody say theory. It's like a blueprint. How many of y'all have built a house before, right? And you put together your blueprint. You got your bathroom over here, and you got your living room over here. And what this is, is it's a blueprint before the building, before the real tabernacle, before the real temple came. 
This was the blueprint to show the people and all people what we were to expect and how God reconciles himself and brings himself to sinful people. Who is the building who fulfills and is now the fulfillment of the blueprint of of the tabernacle? Jesus is. And the New Testament says about Jesus, and especially in the book of Hebrews, it says Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the ark. Inside of the ark is the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And inside of Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of God. And when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, what he was doing was he was providing the payment to avert the wrath of God in our place. That's why Jesus died on the cross. So his blood and him as the mercy seat and him as the tabernacle could be our our answer to averting the wrath of God and being saved from the wrath of God. Now you ask me, why is that particular part, the tabernacle and the mercy seat and Jesus being the fulfillment of that, why is this particular part important? And here's why it's important. Jesus teaches us, and this teaches us, that we need to take God serious. You need to take God serious. God is not playing around when it comes to sinfulness. He's not playing around when it comes to holiness and unholiness. And God is demonstrating in a picture for children in the ancient world. And through Jesus and his fulfillment on the cross, you know what he's teaching us? He ain't playing around. And there is no way that any of us can be saved from the wrath of God, or any human being for that matter, can be saved from the wrath of God outside of saving faith in Jesus Christ. No way. In fact... This chapter in Leviticus 16 emphasizes not sins of commission, sins that I know that I commit, and the atonement for those sins, although it does cover that. This chapter emphasizes in Leviticus unintentional sins that I don't even know about that have to be cleansed, that have to be taken away by the blood, that have to be atoned for. Did you know that you and I will be accountable not only for the sins that we commit, that we willingly and voluntarily commit and know we commit, we are held accountable for all the sins that we don't even know we commit, unintentional sins. That's how serious God needs to be taken. And I'm sure that there are some of us, believers and unbelievers, who maybe we've gotten a little bit lukewarm and we've gotten nominal and we've gotten a little kind of, you know, we've gotten light. Our Christianity is Christianity light. We've gotten a little feathery and we've gotten, you know, watered down. Let me tell you something. Let me encourage you something. God is not a domesticated God. He's not, he's not a little itty-bitty American God, a little nation God waving his little American flag while he's driving down in a minivan. You know what I'm saying? That ain't God. God is the holy God of the universe, and anything that is contrary to his character will be burned up in holy fire. And the only thing that can save you and I is faith in Jesus Christ for all of our sins. And this mercy seat also points to mission, because did you know that Israel was responsible to take this message of atonement not only for themselves, but for the sojourners, for the nations of the world. They were supposed to represent God's holiness and his atonement, the message of atonement to the whole world, to all of the nations. They were to be a blessing to all the nations. And do you know that if people do not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what jungle, nation, tribe, language, or tongue, if they never hear about the atoning, propitious work of Jesus on the cross and they die outside of Christ, they will experience the wrath of God. They will be condemned forever and ever because the 
the reason why we're condemned and the reason why we experience the wrath of God is not because we refuse to believe in Jesus. It's because we are born in sin. It's because we're born separated from God. It's because we are born rebellious towards God. And until we hear about Jesus and believe in Jesus, we cannot be saved. That's why we got to support missionaries and, and we got to minister to them. We got to plant churches. We got to send missionaries. We got to go to all the world. Why God has breath, we are to reach out to more and more people because outside of Christ, they will not experience atonement and their propitiation will not happen except for in themselves they will experience the wrath of God in eternity. We got to take God serious. I know that's a sobering thought. And I know that there's a form of Christianity out there that's very domesticated and doesn't want to deal with this. But listen, God reminds us on the cross, on Good Friday, through Jesus, that he is very serious about his own glory and holiness and about sin. And praise God, Jesus provided the blood and the mercy seat. And if you're not a believer and you're not a Christian and you're a sojourner, and you're without hope and without God in this world, he invites you. He says, come to me. Come all who are thirsty and drink of the living wells of water and have eternal life by faith alone in Jesus. Come to Christ. He took your place. He took the wrath of God in your place. He is the tabernacle. He is the mercy seat and the blood. Well, that's the first element. The second element, and this is probably my favorite part of the whole chapter, Leviticus 16. The second part is the two sets of clothes by the high priest Aaron. Two sets of clothes. The first set is all linen. You heard that in verse 4. His turban was, it was linen. His sash was linen. His shirt was linen. His undergarments were linen. Everything was linen. He was wearing linen underwear. He had linen sash. Everything was linen and things with Aaron. And when he went into the holy of holies, when he went into the most holy place, he was wearing nothing but linen. You're like, why is that significant? I'll tell you why. Because linen is the clothes of humility. Linen is the cheap clothes, the simple clothes, the unadorned garments. There's nothing bling bling about linen in those days. It was was the humble garments as, as Aaron was would go into the presence of God. As Aaron would worship God, he was to remember he has no status in the presence of God. His status is that of a lowly human sinner. His status of that is, is of a humble person in service of God. He can't go before God and say, God, I am the high priest. I am the high priest of the nation of Israel. I am the glorious anointed one of God. No, God would zap him down dead in that moment. Like, boom, he died. Because our status, anyone's status in the presence of God is that of lowly humility, lowly service. Check this out. Throughout the Bible, do you know that angels are referred to as wearing linen in the presence of God as they worship and as they serve him? All of the priests in the Old Testament always wore linen in the holy place. Samuel, when he worshiped, And he went into the temple to worship God. He wore linen. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, remember that? He's dancing. He was barely wearing any clothes. His wife was really upset about that, by the way. But the one thing he was wearing was linen underwear. All right? He was wearing linen. Check this out. In the New Testament, you read, read the book of Revelation and listen to the saints. As they praise God in the throne room of God. And you know what they're wearing? They're wearing... Linen, because of humility, 
And you know what that points to? That points to Jesus, who's the eternal son of God. And when he took on humanity, you know what he was taking on? Linen. And why did he become a human being? Did he become a human being primarily to serve you and I? Yeah, in many ways. But ultimately, he said, I've come to do my father's will. God, my father, has prepared a body for me so that I might be the sacrifice for sins. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was the most holy of holy of places where Jesus, as our high priest, was wearing humility so that you and I could be saved. In fact, in fact, Philippians uh, chapter uh, Philippians chapter 2 really points this out uh, beautifully. Um, in Philipp- I do know how to get around in my Bible. I went to seminary. Philippians 2 and verses 6 and following, it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The emphasis there is that now we have a new high priest, a new mediator between us and God. We don't need a a nation of Israel high priest to, to be our mediator. We have the mediator, Jesus Christ, who in his humility and in his body took our place as our high priest so that you and I would not have to experience the wrath of God. This love is embodied. The love of God, think about it. The love of God is embodied in the physical humility of Jesus for you and I. That's so powerful, just knowing that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And man, when, when Aaron puts on that linen, that, those humble clothes, not clothes of arrogance or pride or, or, or status, but of humility, I think about my Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Good Friday, when we come together on Good Friday and we take communion, and I'll preach another much shorter sermon. It won't be longer than an hour and a half. Don't don't worry. We will be celebrating the humanity of Christ on the cross, that great love. That's the first set of clothes. But then there's the second set of clothes. And when he's done in the most holy place, doing what nobody can see him doing, they're just told, the whole nation is waiting. Day of atonement, everybody's nervous. The holiness of God's about to zap all the sin of the nations on the mercy seat. Don't know if the high priest is going to make it out alive. I mean, it is a day of nerves. And he goes in there and his linen and nobody sees what happens. And it's this great thing that he does before God in humility. But then he leaves his linen clothes. He takes a shower, no, a bath. And he puts on a new set of clothes. And those new set of clothes was to come out before the people and to reveal himself as the high priest. Now, I don't have enough time. I want to keep this sermon efficient today. But man, I tell you, if you want to read about the high priestly garments, read Exodus chapter 25. And what you'll find out about those set of clothes is that it's all bling bling. It's gold and purple and there's diamonds and the big hat and the stuff. And it's all shiny and reflecting and lights 
and you know, all the, the sun's going to beam off of him, and all the people are going to see the glory of the high priest, the glory of Aaron, the beauty. And the reason why he did that was to remind people that God himself is a king, that God himself is beautiful, that God himself is full of goodness, that God himself is the most beautiful thing that you and I or any human being could experience. He comes out, and he says, here I am representing God on your behalf and representing God to you, and I want you to be pleased with the beauty and the glory of God, and then he would lay his head on that other goat that he took out there and would pray on it the sins of the nation and then send it away, representing that the sins of the nation have been sent away. And all of the people rejoiced that their sin had been taken away and that God was so beautiful, that God was so good as to please every satisfaction and desire in their life. And I want you to know that the whole reason why God wants to avert his wrath through Jesus is so that a way can be made for you and I to experience the goodness of God. God wants us to experience him, to see him as beautiful, as most worthy. In fact, God doesn't want us to have cold believism, like, well, I believe in Jesus, I'll move on with life. Jesus died so that you and I could have a relationship with God and we could behold the glory and the goodness of God. And do you know that the ultimate sin in my life is not the bad things I've done? The ultimate sin in my life is forgetting that God is my very best good. That I've imagined that other things are better than God. And every single day, other things are more important than God to my heart. It's the ultimate sin. In fact, it's the sin that leads to all other sins. We started reading. I, I read, uh, we study books uh, with some men in the church every, every now and then. And, and, and one of the books we just started was a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Have you all ever heard of C.S. Lewis or, or this book? It's a great book, Mere Christianity. And what happened was, this was our first week, yesterday was our first week to begin reading the opening chapters, and we were assigned chapters to read and then talk about it. And what I figured out is when I got to the, to the study of this book with the guys, I realized I read the wrong chapters. I was like, what kind of pastor are you? You know, you can't even get the chapters right. And I didn't know it at first. I didn't know it until they started talking, and we started like, okay, let's talk about what we've read. And they started talking, and I was like, it was like a foreign language, just like, blah, 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 and I was like... I have no idea what they're saying. You know what I mean? But the, the part I read ended up being providential because the part I read was really useful for my sermon. And so I'd rather have a good sermon than a good conversation and coffee with dudes. I'll let them be smart and then I'll preach sermon. But C.S. Lewis, I don't have a slide for this. This quote's far too long. But listen to this. It's so good. Because what he's talking about in this quote is he's talking about the fact that what Satan does is he distracts us from the goodness of God. And Jesus, in his resurrection, Jesus, in his high priestly work in our life, he begins to show us once again how good God is. But listen to how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, quote, What Satan put in the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like God's. They could set up on their own as if they had created themselves be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man 
trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. By the way, this is mid-20th century, so before electric cars. He goes on to say, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions devise, but each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and the cruel people to the top. Can I get an amen? The cruel people always come to the top, and it always slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up all right and runs a few years, and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us human beings. Do you see that? He's trying to make us run on something that's not God. And what happens is at first we kind of pitter and patter and, and kind of go down the road a little way. And then our car breaks down because we're running on the wrong fuel. And what is the fuel of life? What is the stuff that makes life work? What is the real satisfaction and goodness that you and I were meant to experience? God himself and all of his beauty and all of his goodness. And I'm convinced that when Jesus died on the cross, he had his linen clothes on. When he was buried in the tomb, he had his linen clothes on. But when he raised again on the third day, he put on his high priestly garments to reveal to our hearts and to our minds how good God is. Do you remember what happened on the day of his resurrection? Nobody could recognize him. Do you remember that? There's the two guys, two guys walking to Emmaus, day of resurrection. Jesus is like walking along them. He's like, what are you dudes doing? And they're like, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth is dead. And he's like, I'm Jesus. And they were like, whoa. Do you remember Thomas didn't, 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 didn't see him? The disciples, they had to be told. And it wasn't that Jesus was a ghost. It wasn't that Jesus had risen as a different spirit. It was that in his physical resurrection, his glorified physical body was changed. And in his ascension, what he does is he comes and he reveals to our heart. This is how we're saved. We're born again because he reveals to our heart by the Holy Spirit how good God is. And we begin to acquiesce to the goodness of God through the resurrection of our high priest, Jesus Christ. And he wants you to know, he wants you to know that no matter how sad you might be, God's goodness will save you and heal you. No matter what you've experienced, what strongholds or bondages or darknesses, it's the goodness of God that will begin to lead you beyond that day of atonement to a day of transformation. What Jesus did in his death and resurrection wasn't just to save us from the wrath of God. It was to remove the wrath of God so that you and I could finally experience God in a relationship that led us to worship him, to find pleasure in him, and have a relationship with him. That is the significance of the two sets of clothes. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the two sets of clothes. Here's the third element. Jesus is the two different sacrifices. Jesus is the two different sacrifices. When we come to Leviticus 16, I don't have to spend a lot of time on this point. You can see it clearly enough. 
The idea is so simple. One animal is used for the most holy place. The blood is taken in the mercy seat. Aren't you glad we don't have to do all this anymore? Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to go to some temple and go, is the animal good enough? You know what I mean? Like, you got a goat and a bull and a lamb and a shave it down. You know what I mean? You don't have to. I thought that was funny, but. You don't have to do that anymore. Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law of God so that we don't have to do any of that. And we can look to Jesus. We don't have to worry about all this day of atonement stuff. We can just look to Good Friday and remember I'm good because of Jesus' sacrifice. But that one animal goes and he's applied by the finger of, of Aaron and he's sprinkled all over the place, the blood. And that averts, in theory, the wrath of God. But then the other animal is chosen by a lot not to die, but to live. And Aaron prays on it, and he sends that live goat, as everybody's watching, out into the wilderness into a remote area so that it will never come back again. Remember in Lord of the Rings, you know, Fellowship of the Rings, when Gandalf's like, go back to your shadow, you know what I mean? And Okay. Why did I do that? Anyways... But what Jesus does is he says to our sin, go back to your shadow, go back to the darkness, go back into the wilderness and never come back again. And our sins are thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has our sins been removed from us. We never have to worry again because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the full price. And we can say, I'm right with God. My sin's been removed. And you know what I can do? I can move on with my life. I can move beyond strongholds and bondages. I can move beyond the past of defeat and begin to walk in the victory that Jesus purchased for me. I can be more than a conqueror through him who loved me and gave his life for me. I can remember that if God did not spare his only begotten son, how will he not freely give me all things that I need for his glory and for my good? I can move on. And you know what? Some of us need to be encouraged about that from church every now and then because you go back into sin and there's stuff in your life and you got, you got bondages and you're starting to fall into some sin. Listen to me. You don't have to sin anymore through Jesus Christ. There is no obligation or dominion of sin or Satan or demons over your life. You have authority through Christ looking at him take our sins into a remote place and you can be more than a conqueror through his love. You can once again overcome sin in your life. Amen. Move on. What is it? What is it that you're not taking seriously as a sin in your life? Man, embrace this victory. Turn from it. Let it go into a remote place because Jesus, Jesus died so you could do that. Don't waste the death of Jesus by continuing to walk in the very thing he took away from you. Defeat it. Overcome it. In Christ. Now, you're like, you're going longer than you did in first service, I bet. I am. I'm feeling pretty good. But here's the thing. What does the sacrifice tell us about God? Many people don't like the idea of propitiation, and here's why. They don't like it because it makes God sound like that in order for him not to judge us, he needs to be bribed. He needs to be tricked. He needs to be paid off. God's waiting around, and he's going, you better bribe me if you don't want to experience my judgment. You better bribe me. See, all the heathen religions had an idea of propitiation. All peoples all over the world have been frightened about deities, and they're worried their crops won't grow, and so they, they kill an animal and take the blood to the shrine. 
or they kill animals and they take it to the little statue idol and they bow it down. They say, please, don't be mad at me. I'm paying you off, God, local God, deity person. I'm paying you off so that everything will go right in my life. And people don't like the God of the Bible being so closely associated to those concepts of bribery of the ancient gods of ancient mythology. But here's what I want you to see. The difference in Leviticus and the difference in Jesus is this. Leviticus 17, verse 11, God says, I provide the blood. I provide the sacrifice. I make the payment. And when Jesus came, it was God, the eternal son, who paid the price on our behalf. So that you and I don't have to pay a price to God. So you and I don't have to be propitious on our own. God was propitious for himself to save you and I. In fact, this is the very definition of love in the Bible. Is that God is willing to put himself on the hook. To deconstruct in himself the payment that was due to his wrath. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, one of the most powerful statements on propitiation in all of the Bible because it connects it deeply to the love of God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The very essence of love is God himself out of his own nature flowing from himself to avert his own wrath and own anger because of our sin so that you and I could be free. That is the difference between the propitiation of the Bible and the propitiation of all the shrines and temples around the world and in all of history. Many of us, we know people who don't know what to do with their anger. You know what I mean? You get angry and you don't know what to do. Now, I never get angry because I'm a pastor and I'm perfect, but I'm sure you... No, I've gotten angry. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should hit a wall or throw a pillow or grab my Bible and slam it. Sometimes I've even preached angry, and I've been like, sinners, and then I go home, you know. And we know, and, and, and what happens is when people don't know what to do with their anger, they always do something wrong with it. Now, God is angry about sin, but the difference between God and everybody else is God knows what to do. He's the one being in the universe that says, I know how to avert my own anger so I can deal with you in love. And his answer is himself. I will absorb. I will take. I will put this on my back and make propitiation so that I can still be holy and you be unholy and you and I will be together. That's the beauty of the sacrifice and the propitiation of Jesus on the cross now, I've got to end this really quick. The fourth element is the response of the people. If you read Leviticus, their job is to respond in two ways. It says they are to afflict. Everybody say afflict. They are to afflict themselves. And they are to pray. They are to afflict themselves. Sorry. They are to afflict themselves and they are to rest. I, that's, that's what I meant to say. They are to rest. Afflict and rest. The difference between Day of Atonement and Good Friday are these. Number one. There's only one sacrifice that's now needed. We don't have to do this every single year. Can I get an amen? When Jesus died on the cross, he did it once for all, for all of our sins, sins of commission, sins of omission, doesn't matter. Jesus paid the full price. The difference between Good Friday and, 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 and the Day of Atonement is not only that Jesus did it once for all, but Jesus is himself the sacrifice, 
But the other difference between the Day of Atonement and Good Friday is that we don't have to afflict ourselves. We can just do the rest part. We get to rest in Jesus. We get to rest in the joy of the completeness of our salvation. And here's what you and I need to do to rest in the propitious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Number one, hate sin. Because the more you hate sin, the more you'll find rest in Christ. Kill it before it kills you, right? Here's the second thing. Discover confidence without being self-satisfied. Confident because you're accepted by Jesus, but never be satisfied. He's taking you to new places of growth. He's taking you to new experiences of a goodness of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray as we prepare for communion.